Pop Culture Affidavit presents... It came from syndication! Episode 1. Syndication defined at the movies. Make it so. We are best girlfriends. Hello and welcome to Syndication. This is the first episode of It Came From Syndication, a pop culture affidavit miniseries that is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Paneris, and over the course of the next seven episodes, I'm going to spend my time offering up a retrospective of what you could find on syndicated television in the 80s and early to mid-90s. This is important to me, as I'll get to later on in the uh, episode here, in that I watched a lot of syndicated television back in the day, uh, because this was the period of my childhood, my formative years, and up until about the time I graduated high school. And for each episode, each of these seven episodes, I'm going to focus on a different television genre and try to give you as good of a thorough look as possible as to what was on television back then. Now... Like I said, I watched a lot of syndicated television in the 80s and 90s, and I'm going to get to the hows and whys of that later on in the episode. But since this is the first episode of the series, and we're kind of getting into you know, the, the genesis of this idea, I am going to focus on what syndication is, give you the basics of how it works, like I said, tell my personal story, and then... I'm going to get into my first programming genre of, and the focus of this episode, genre focus of this episode, which is movies. So let's start with syndication defined. What is syndication? Syndication, if you look it up on Wikipedia and you get to the page for broadcast syndication, the basic definition that you will see is the license to broadcast programs on radio and television by multiple stations without going through a broadcast network. The idea here is that a studio or a production company sells episodes or broadcast rights to a show or to local stations. Now, sometimes they're network affiliates, and other times they're not, and the station airs them during the day for as long as they have those rights. For a network affiliate, this might mean airing a show in off-peak times, such as between soap operas or the local and the local or nightly news, or after late night when the broadcast network is ostensibly off the air. Now, when you're talking about programming, there's myriad genres of syndicated shows, and that's the reason for this whole series. Uh, you know, like I said, I'm covering seven, uh, from movies all the way to. Uh, syndicated science fiction and drama. And for the most part, if kind of you're looking at things from a top-level view, you have two general types. You have the first run and you have the off-network. A first-run syndicated show has well, a self-explanatory definition, and that's something that was produced strictly for this market. These are shows such as Star Trek The Next Generation, Babylon 5, Xena Warrior Princess, Superboy. They were never shown on regular broadcast network and instead found their way to syndicated channels where they aired at various times during the week. Off-network syndication is when a popular or long-running show had made enough episodes for the production company to package it up and sell it to a station or a group of stations. Now, this is how when I was in college, for instance, my roommates and I were able to watch The Simpsons twice a night because the local Fox station ran two old episodes back-to-back -back every day. Now, I don't know all the details, and I don't feel like getting into all the technical and business aspects of syndication, but I do know that a show needs to have somewhere between 80 to 100 episodes for it to qualify for a syndicated package. I want to say that the number 84 
is actually what, what I'm thinking of, and that's kind of running through my head. But if I'm being completely honest, I'm not entirely sure that's correct. But still, you need a lot. You need several, several seasons of a show that is popular enough to warrant a network, uh, a local affiliate picking up from the network or the production company and running it in reruns. Now, syndication actually has a pretty big history, a pretty big backstory that goes back to a period way before the 1980s. Now, I'm going to be focusing on the 80s and the early 90s, mainly because, as I said at the top of the show, this was my years. This was my childhood. I was born in 1977, and I graduated high school in 1995. And, and, and for me, um, 95, 96 is a important year uh, to cut this off at, as well as kind of focusing on these late 80s, early 90s, really, really more specifically. And I'll get to the, the history behind that in, in a little while. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the history of syndicated programming in the United States. Syndicated programming has actually been around almost as long as television networks have been around. Back in the 1950s and through quite a number of decades, stations would actually sign off at the end of the day, especially non-broadcast network stations that didn't have enough programming to fill a full 24 hours. This isn't the case now, as many channels fill what would have been off-the-air time with infomercials for products that are designed to get insomniacs to part with their money, which in turns will help generate money for these stations. I don't know how the revenue streaming or sharing works, but stations, if, you, if you're watching TV late at night and you come across a local network affiliate, you and even some cable stations, you will see a buttload of infomercials. Now, the 1960s is when syndication as we know it had its true genesis. Congress passed the All-Channel Receiver Act in 1961, and the significance of this was that all television manufacturers were required to put UHF dials on their televisions. This allowed access to more channels over the airwaves, and combined with the failure of the Dumont Television Network, there was a good amount of space available for new stations to be established. I should briefly mention the Dumont Network because it has a direct tie to the beginnings of syndication, specifically one of the syndicated channels in my in the area where I grew up, which was Long Island outside of New York City. Dumont was the original, quote, fourth network. Uh, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you had three networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC. They all exist today. Now, Dumont was established in 1946, and it competed directly with the big three, and it was only around for about a decade. Uh, it ceased operations about 10 years later, almost to the day. It almost um, it almost went off in, in 1956, like like exactly the day it it, uh, it started. And it doesn't get much attention in television history and retrospectives, possibly because a lot of his archive was destroyed in the 1970s because as part of a cost-cutting measure in the industry uh, a number of networks in the early days would basically tape over their already recorded shows that way they didn't have to buy more film or, or tape or whatever they were, were were recording the broadcasts on so there are a, a number of lost television programs just in the way that a lot of movies especially from the silent era are considered lost films uh and i guess well, I guess the thought was that there was no reason to preserve this because it was considered ephemeral. Uh, television for a number of years after all was the backwater of entertainment. Uh, despite a number of stars throughout the years, it's only been in the last couple of decades that it's considered nearly on par with movies. So, you know, keeping random dramas, sitcoms, especially game shows and things like from the 40s and 50s around back then was not really considered that big of a deal. Now, the Dumont Network, just getting back to the topic of the Dumont Network, it was responsible for some historic television firsts, including the first sitcom, which was called Mary Kay and Johnny, the first soap opera, which was called Faraway Hill, and the first game show, which was called Cash and Carry. It also aired the show Cavalcade of Stars, which launched the career of Jackie Gleason. 
and aired programs from two genres that were big in syndication for decades. Science fiction, with the show Captain Video and his Video Rangers, which was enormously popular with children, as well as professional wrestling, courtesy of Capital Wrestling, which would later become the WWF and then, of course, the WWE. Wikipedia's page on the network is really extensive. Uh, even It even notes that the network was progressive and that it had some of the earliest programming aimed at minorities. So I do recommend going and reading the Dumont network page. But anyway, Dumont, we're talking about, this is not a podcast about Dumont, it's about syndication. Dumont has a connection to syndication, um, and but it's not through its programming. It's through the concept of UHF. Uh, there was not a lot of space available on the VHS bandwidth spectrum uh, back in the day, and the big three owned most of it. So Dumont actually was forced to go to UHF to broadcast, and up until that All Channels Act was passed in 1961, not all televisions that were manufactured in the United States had the capability to pick up the UHF bandwidth, and therefore Dumont's ratings were always terrible. The, the ratings fell, and they continued to fell. The fall, the stars where the stars of the Dumont network saw opportunity at other networks and they left for those. And like I said, Dumont folded in 1956. But the stations and the affiliates that existed in these certain markets remained. And what happened was that John Kluge, who's actually a name, believe it or not, tied to where I live now, Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, and he um, would also purchase Orion Pictures in the mid-1980s, by the way. So Kluge... Kluge was kind of a media mogul for uh, for quite a quite a large amount of time. Anyway, and he bought the other uh, he bought out the shareholders in the company. So he was a share he was a shareholder in the Dumont network. He bought out everybody else, including Dumont Laboratories, which was the company was named for, and Paramount Pictures, which had a stake in the network. Now Kluge bought. Dumont, he changed the company's name to Metro Media. In the late 1950s, Kluge's purchase basically really was just two stations, WTTG in Washington, D.C., and WABD in New York City. WTTG continues to operate under those call letters, whereas WABD changed its letters to WNEW. And then Kluge sold Metro Media to Rupert Murdoch in the 1980s, and it became WNYW. Both stations are now each of those cities' Fox network affiliates. Anyway, what I gave you is a very simplified version of the Dumont story and how it actually ties into the origins of the Vox network, but Kluge sold that company to Murdoch in 85 for $3.5 billion. So from the original purchase of two stations from, from the ashes of Dumont, it grew to be incredibly huge. Uh, but that's because of syndication and, and local programming. Uh, there were a number of syndicated shows in the 1950s, and many of them were produced by Ziv Television Productions. The first and one of the biggest being the Cisco Kid. I'm sure one of my parents uh, could tell me about some of these shows. They were, they were kids in the 50s. Um, others included Sea Hunt, Highway Patrol, The Abbott and Costello Show, and a musical variety show that starred Liberace. But one common thread among the early first-run syndicated shows in general was Family and Kids Fair. Mr. Ed was originally a first-run syndicated show, as was a show that is near and dear to many a comics fan's heart, The Adventures of Superman, starring George Reeves. But what we know as syndication, as I mentioned, the, the all Channels Act in 1961 and the birth of syndication through the 50s into the 60s. What we really know about syndication, what we really consider syndication, starts in the early 70s, specifically in 1971. That year, the FCC passed the Prime Time Access Rule and the Financial Interest and Syndication Rules. Now, these basically told the networks that they had to free up an hour of prime time every night and also spin off network-owned affiliates into independent businesses. Combined with more actual UHF stations on the air, this led to, to a demand for more content. However, original programming, it's not cheap to produce. So we started to get some really cheaply produced variety dance and movie clips shows. Uh, we got imported British series and weeknight 
versions of what were then network weekly game shows. But what it also opened the doors to was reruns. So it's in the 1970s and beyond that that nightly airings of television shows that have been off the air for years or were deep into long network runs started showing up on these syndicated channels. Many people in my generation grew up watching a number of shows that had run 5, 10, 15, even 20 or 30 years earlier, turning in, tuning in every morning or evening for reruns of Lassie, Dennis the Menace, Leave it to Beaver, The Munsters, The Addams Family, The Adventures of Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, The Incredible Hulk, The Six Million Dollar Man, Chips, Charlie's Angels, Magnum P.I., The Brady Bunch, Bewitched, I Dream of Jeannie, Gilligan's Island, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Mork and Mindy, What's Happening, Good Times, WKRP in Cincinnati, All in the Family, The Jeffersons, Different Strokes, The Facts of Life, Family Ties, Night Court, Bosom Buddies, The Simpsons, Seinfeld, Friends, Growing Pains, Family Matters, Perfect Strangers, Married with Children, MASH, Cheers, Star Trek, The Honeymooners, The Twilight Zone, and that is just the ones that I came up with off the top of my head. It was, at least for those of us without cable, who didn't have Nick at Night, like rifling through the back issues at your LCS. I have lost count of the number of hours that I logged in front of a television after my homework was done, uh, making my way through the entire history of a show over the course of maybe a few months, and then doubling back to see its very first episode from a time that I barely remembered because I was a little kid. These stations also possessed a library of old movies as, where, as well as fairly recent ones, and I'd say that this is another place where I really cut my teeth as a movie fan, in addition to, say, the video store. But I'm going to get to the movies a little later. For now, I'm going to take a quick break, and I'm going to come back with a breakdown on how syndication worked when I was growing up in Long Island in the 80s and 90s, and a little bit of my personal experience. So stick around. Afternoon, everybody. Ryan! How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure, gotta give my mouth something to do between podcasts. Say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby? Would you? Truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid, ever since his first words were Dagobah system. <laughs> now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... Podcast about cheers, yeah. <laughs> that kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Network. Serving Nassau and Suffolk counties, this is WLIG TV Riverhead. Superstation, Long Island. Serving New Jersey, New York, and Connecticut. You're watching Channel 9. WWOR TV. My parents' house didn't have cable until December of 1996. Uh, that was the day that uh, my dad was trying to hook up our new. I think it was our new VCR or a new television or something. And in the process of doing so, accidentally broke the cable that hooked the antenna to the television. Now, as he looked at the piece of broken plastic and the coax cable that was in his hand, I said, well, I guess we'll have to get cable then. All right, he said. Now, this was the end of what was an epic battle of wills over cable television. Years before, and we're talking like early 1980s, 
my parents had had Showtime and only Showtime. So remember how like when you were a kid, um, you had that basic cable box that was just this box with a slide rule on it, basically, and you slid the box down to the different channels. And of course, um, your parents probably yelled at you because you slid it really fast and went like, you know, yeah, you could break it. Um, we didn't have that. This this box was it was a tan or beige box, and it had two buttons on the top. And there was a black one and a red one, and I think the black one was you hit you turn to channel three, I believe. And the black one you hit regular television, and the red one you hit and you if you were on channel three you had Showtime. It's either channel three or UHF or whatever. But long story short, we didn't even have regular cable. We just had Showtime. Um, and this thing, like I said, my parents my parents got rid of it. And they probably just weren't watching it, and or they they couldn't afford it or whatever. But my friend Chris had one of those slide rule <laughs> cable boxes. I could watch Nickelodeon at his house, and uh, and this was the case really for years. If it wasn't his house, it was my friend Tom's house. It was my grandmother's house. Um, it was my friend Brendan's house. It was all my friends had cable, and I didn't. So I'd go to their houses, and we'd watch Nick at night. We'd watch regular Nickelodeon. We'd watch videos on MTV, maybe even VH1. Atlanta Braves baseball on TBS, uh, ESPN, Scrambled Playboy Channel, or in the case of a couple of friends that I had in junior high and high school, they had an illegal cable box. So basically we could watch full-on Playboy or the full-on Playboy that they kind of stealthily taped using the VCR and the timer off their parents' television. So anyway, my sister and I begged my parents for cable because like everybody else had it and we were like the only people who didn't have it. And I have to be honest, I spent time being ridiculed by a few people for not having cable. It is the dumbest thing in the world, but the struggle was real and it drove me nuts. Now, I note all of this pathetic backstory into the history of what I could and couldn't watch on television as a kid, because 1996 is essentially the end of an era in my house, and that era centered around seven, sometimes nine channels, three, later four of which were networks, two of which were PBS, and four of which were syndication. So for this mini-series, I'm going to spend my time looking at programming that was on the syndication stations of my youth, starting in the early 1980s, and that's when I started elementary school, and ending in 1996. Furthermore, I will be focusing on four specific New York area television stations. The one I already mentioned, WNEW slash WNYW, Channel 5, WOR, later WWOR, Channel 9, WPIX Channel 11, and WLIG Channel 55, with a special emphasis on Channels 5, 9, and 11, which I watch the most often. I won't get into the specifics of what shows I watched on what stations. I, I may mention it in a couple of episodes here and there, but I don't need to kind of like go through old TV schedules or something. Um, but I want to take a little bit of time to talk about what those stations are or were in some cases. And I guess I should also say that some of the major broadcast network did air syndicated or locally based programming from time to time. And there will be a few shows where I will talk about that. And believe it or not, in a couple of conversations I've had with people in, in episodes that I've already recorded, we do dip into cable a little bit, especially when we talk when Amanda and I talk about the genre of game shows. Uh, we, we get into we get into um, we get into game shows that were on cable because it's hard to have a conversation about 80s game shows without mentioning pressure luck or supermarket sweep. So you know you take it what it is I'm breaking my own rules on occasion. but seriously we are gonna be, I am gonna be talking about locally laced programming, syndicated programming and from time to time, I'll be talking about the stuff that was aired on network affiliates like on NBC or the ABC affiliate. But for the most part, these four stations are where I'm keeping myself grounded. I'm going to start by talking about the last one I mentioned, which was WLIG TV 55. Because out of the four that I did mention, it was the, la the one I watched the least. And that's because I discovered it pretty late. 
Channel 55 was a Long Island-based channel that broadcast from the eastern end of Long Island, and it was only around for the better part of a decade. Looking at its history, though, it was a pretty popular station, and you can find some of its original programming on YouTube, including a local show called At The Mall. Television station presents At the Mall with Drew Scott. And now, direct from the center court at the Smith Haven Mall, here's Drew Scott. Here we are at Smith Haven Mall. Look at this crowd. This is a great crowd. Welcome to Center Court at Smith Haven Mall. We're very glad to have you with us today. We promise you a great show. And right now, we're going to introduce to you Mary Ellen Fialkowski. You are? I'm the marketing director. You're the one who's responsible for allowing us to be here today. Yes. Thank you. Well, thank you. We're and, happy to have you. And I was so flattered by that sign welcoming me to the mall today. It said, <laughs> Broadcast News on it. Yeah, right. At the movies. That right? was just the movie. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, well, it was nice while it lasts. Mary Ellen, tell us a little bit about the mall. The mall was originally built in 1969. In 1986, we added a fourth wing anchored by the food court. We now have 160 stores, Macy's, A&S, Steinbach's, and Sears. Food court is my favorite. I love it. Uh, how many visitors do you get? We get approximately half a million people a week here at Smith Inner Mall. That's something uh, it was this really like talk variety talent show that was broadcast from the very center, the hub of the Smith Haven Mall in 1987. I found a clip of it on YouTube and I'll post it in the show notes. It's like this bizarre local human interest show. It's it's fun as hell to watch and yet like strange at the same time. Like just I, I this is why I love the 80s and 90s. It's just just because like there was this throw it to the wall and see what sticks in terms of we have to fill airtime on channels like this attitude. But the problem is that I can't really go into it more than that than what I've seen on YouTube because I didn't get this station until the early 90s. Uh, and that's because my parents bought a new VCR around that time and that VCR was cable ready. And what I discovered was that if you watch television through the VCR, so you turn on channel 3, because this is back in the day where you still had to turn on channel 3 or 4 for a VCR. You turn on channel 3, hit that VCR button instead of the TV button, and you change the channels using the VCR remote, you could get two more stations than what we had available. One was another PBS uh, station, WLIW Channel 21, and TV 55. But I don't remember, remember really much. I mean, 55 ran Jeopardy on the off schedule of the ABC station. So the ABC affiliate in New York, and I think they still do this to this day, airs Jeopardy before Wheel of Fortune, whereas where I live in Charlottesville, it's, it's the opposite. Jeopardy airs at, at 7.30. But TV 55 flipped them over so that uh, if you wanted to cheat at Jeopardy with your family, you watched the 7 o'clock broadcast on Channel 7 and then flipped over to 55 at 7.30 or something like that. I'm, I may be mixing it up, but you could watch one and then cheat on the other because it was the same show every night. Anyway, that's my very little experience with TV 55, although the clips I've seen online are, are really fun to look at. WWOR which I first started watching when it was still just WOR, is Channel 9 in the New York area, and it um, has the distinction of being one of the few broadcast channels that are not only located in New Jersey, but also essentially serve New Jersey. Uh, it is actually dates back to 1949, and it was an independent television station until the mid-1990s when it became the New York area's UPN affiliate. Uh, at the moment is the My TV Network station in the area. The station is quite a history, and it is notable for some of its original programming, some of which I will discuss on future episodes of this miniseries. But one I do want to mention, because it was the first time I ever watched, the first one I ever watched on this channel when I was a kid, is Romper Room. This show did not 
originate out of WWOR. It actually was created in Baltimore. But the way the show originally existed was as sort of a franchise. So local stations would have had their versions of Romper Room, as well as the nationally syndicated version that ran out of uh, WBAL, the Baltimore station. And I think that by the time I was old enough to watch television on my own, WOR was running that nationally syndicated version. And of course, I would watch that. I would watch Sesame Street. I would watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, both of which were on PBS. Of course, Romper Room itself has a notable place in the history uh, of the abortion controversy, which has to do with Sherry Finkbein, who was the host of the Phoenix-based version of the show and who traveled to Sweden in 1962 to terminate her pregnancy because she had been taking thalidomide and she was afraid the child that she was carrying would be deformed. Uh, That case, although it was not affiliated with WOR, did make national headlines and I think is still associated with the television show Romper Room to an extent, at least to people from that generation who remember it or other people who have a knowledge of television history and trivia, such as myself. Of course, when I was four years old, I knew nothing about Miss Sherry. I knew nothing about thalidomide. And I was more concerned about having my name called out at the end of the show. You have a good day today, friends. I did. You had a Superman day. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Spider-Man day. Good, I'm glad to hear that. Well, you know what? Wait. You know what time it is? It's time for me to see the friends at home in the magic mirror. Romper, bomper, stomper, boo. Tell me, tell me, tell me, do. Magic mirror, tell me today. Did all my friends have fun at play? All my friends had fun today. I see David's having a special day today. And Olivia Joy had a special day on Sunday. I see Robin had a special day yesterday. And Dana's having a special day today. And so is Reginald and Edward John and Margaret. And I see, I see Justin and Megan and Courtney and Brick and Mark and Rachel and Sheila and Caroline are all having special days. And Cicely and Ashley and Matthew and Jose. And I see Bonnie and Anthony and Joe had special days yesterday. And so did Tammy and Brandon and Gregory. And of course, friends, you know I see you. And I'll see you. And when she said who she saw on television land that day, and, and my name was called, man, that made my day. Then I'd like go to nursery school where it was pretty much a live action romper room for a few hours each day because we said the same prayer that was on the show and learned a lot of the same lessons about manners and stuff. I guess by 1981, they really perfected how to get television to raise your kid. Anyway, I grew out of Romper Room, but then discovered the one thing that I would always associate with WOR and WWOR, which is New York Mets baseball. There's a little bit of winner in there's a little bit of got to be the best. There's a little boy I know it can do. There's a little bit of better than all the rest. It's a feeling of working together. It's a joy of sharing a dream. It's giving your heart to make it better. And being a part of the team. Catch the rising stars. Catch the rising stars. Let's rise the world to see. The Mets are part of you and me. There's a little bit of Mets in everyone. Go for the challenge, go for the fun. Catch the rising stars, catch the rising stars. The Mets for all the world to see. The Mets are part of you and me. Catch the rising stars, watch them shine on Channel 9. The Mets play for keeps when they take on the Houston Astros tonight at 8.30. Now, I'm not going to get into this too much because back in 2016 I did an episode of Pop Culture Affidavit with Paul Spataro and we talked about the 86 Mets but we went really deep into watching the Mets on TV during the 80s but I will say that WWOR was for Mets games throughout the 80s and 90s and for me that was its primary function until I discovered some of the cartoon reruns sitcom reruns talk shows and then it, you know talk shows that are in the daytime and later on during the late night hours i mean it winds up being ranked third on this list because i would have to remember something that was actually airing on channel nine instead of going to it by default like i did five and eleven but that's not to say it wasn't watched 
I think I even watched the news from time to time, or I happened to be around when it was on, because to this day, I still think about the weatherman on the Channel 9 News, uh, Lloyd Lindsay Young, and he used to pronounce humidity, jokingly, humididity. WWOR became known for at least a few of its locally produced but regionally or nationally syndicated shows, such as Steampipe Alley. This was a kid's show hosted by Mario Cantone. The Richard Bay Show, which is something I'll go into more in-depth on in a future episode. Howard Stern's primetime show in the early 1990s. And most famously or infamously, the Morton Downey Jr. Show. And there is a great documentary out there called Provocateur, I believe, about Morton Downey Jr. and the Morton Downey Jr. Show. It is really, really worth watching. Uh, a while back, it was available on Netflix. It may not be, but see if you can track it down and watch it. It's really, really good. Beyond that, they did run sitcoms. They reran The Cosby Show, Who's the Boss, Perfect Strangers, Married with Children, and they have a number of first-run syndication comedies in their arsenal, as well as dramas. My Secret Identity, Out of This World, Superboy, Highlander, and Baywatch. So there will be a fair amount of stuff to mine from WWOR in this miniseries. But like I said, if I wasn't looking for a particular show, I was tuning into one of two other stations. Channel 5 or Channel 11. Now... I gave you guys a little bit of history about WNEW, which would later be WNYW. It is Channel 5 in the New York City area. It is second on my list of stations, really by virtue of the fact that it became the Fox affiliate in the mid-80s and therefore was not exactly a fully-fledged syndicated station for my late childhood and early teens. And I say not exactly because the evolution of Fox as a broadcast network was kind of prolonged in the 80s into the early 90s. And even into the 2000s, the channel would still run sitcom reruns. In fact, I would watch The Simpsons, Seinfeld, and Friends on the DC affiliate for many, many years. Now, they run one, maybe two sitcoms at the most, and a look at a lot of their programming it's Judge Show's TMZ local news, so not a lot of not a lot of reruns and things. So the variety of Channel 5 doesn't help its case of the syndicated station, but there are other things that do. First is the fact that, as I mentioned, it was the New York City Dumont station. So it has that rich history. Second, even though it became the Fox network, its syndicated offerings, well, man, they were really good. For cartoons, Channel 5 was the source for He-Man and She-Ra, as well as Voltron. Then it was where I watched different strokes and the facts of life, and how I would also watch shows like the music video show Hot, which I blogged about last year, the soap opera Tribes, which I think I blogged about in early 2015. Um, I think it's this and coupled with that later Simpsons, Seinfeld, Friends years and the fact that Fox used to rerun MTV stuff from time to time that I have such a fondness for this channel, even if it has kind of a dearth of original syndicated programming. When you turn the TV on in my house, this is what you tuned it to. That is, if you weren't tuning it to my favorite and I think objectively the best syndicated television station in New York City, WPIX Channel 11. WPIX has been airing content for 70 years. And in the mid-1990s, it did become the New York's WB affiliate. It's now the home of the CW in the New York area. It was founded and owned for many years by the New York Daily News, a newspaper whose slogan was New York's Picture Newspaper, Hence, PIX, or PIX, as the call letters. This station, like WOR, had also had its share of well-known original children's programming, including The Magic Garden, and it aired New York City-centered events such as the St. Patrick's Day Parade and Midnight Mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral on Christmas Eve. WPIX would also run the Yule Log. It's Christmas Eve. A wonderful time for family and friends. A time for tradition, sharing, and good cheer. 
And in the spirit of the holidays, Channel 11 and 102 WPIX Radio New York have joined together and preempted all regularly scheduled programming in order to share our special holiday tradition with you. The WPIX Yule Log. Two commercial-free hours of your favorite Christmas and holiday melodies, accompanied by the warmth of a beautiful Yule Log fire. Plus, for your added listening pleasure, the WPIX Yule Log is being simulcast in FM stereo. Tune in to 102 WPIX Radio to enjoy your favorite Christmas music in full stereo. So, to all of our viewers and listeners, Merry Christmas and a Happy Healthy New Year from everyone at Channel 11 and FM Stereo 102 WPIX. As well as it was the home for many, many years of Yankees baseball. Now, what made it the most important station to me from the time I was a kid to the time I was a teenager was a trifecta of cartoons, reruns, and movies. Now, before I go into my ramble about WPIX, I do want to make a reference to and plug an absolutely wonderful blog post and blog in general. Matt who runs the blog Dinosaur Dracula and uh, used to have the late lamented X Entertainment blog, wrote about WPIX a few months ago, and I'll link that in the show notes as well. And he said really a lot of what I am going to say here. Um, he and I are around the same age, too. He might be a, a year or two younger than me. So what I got out of it, aside from a nice dose of nostalgia, was the idea that I have a common experience with someone who I don't know at all. And that's really what I'm going for with this show as well. I mean, this is what I go for with Pop Culture Affidavit on a general level, even though the show exists for me to just kind of talk about random crap that I like in pop culture. But at the same time, I came up with this series because when you look across the spectrum of comedies and game shows and talk shows and dramas and sci-fi and stuff, there are common threads that through a generation a lot of us can kind of latch onto, and that, that's what makes for, I don't know, I don't want to say like it builds friendships, but on some level that's true. I mean, you you get that, that common that common ground is something that, that, that makes you able to have a conversation with somebody or, or just really feel connected even though you don't know the person. So it's actually not the reason I'm friends with Mike Bailey, but Mike uh, grew up watching a number of the same programs and channels because he was able to pick up New York stations uh, when he grew up in Pennsylvania. And I'm going to have him on a later episode anyway, so he'll you'll hear him talk about that personally. But like Mike and like Matt from Dinosaur Dracula, there's an entire generation. Like, we were all raised through this cartoon programming. And... We can also say that we discovered a lot of more... It's not adult entertainment because the phrase adult entertainment means something that I talked about with my friends in their illegal cable boxes in the Playboy channel. Older entertainment because of WPIX. Now, I'm going to be covering sitcoms, dramas, and cartoons in different episodes. Uh, so I'm not going to get into too much detail, except to say that I have a deep knowledge and appreciation for a number of television shows that, that aired before my time. And much of that is thanks to Channel 11. Had 11 not aired reruns of Happy Days, The Brady Bunch, Good Times, The Incredible Hulk, Batman, Star Trek, The Honeymooners, or The Twilight Zone... I don't think I would have ever sought them out on my own, nor would I have been interested in other shows of the same vintage. Plus, their reruns of Growing Pains and Cheers while those shows were still on the air were like, as I said, flipping through the back issues of my favorite comic series while I waited for the latest issue to drop each month. It was, as Matt's post on Dinosaur Dracula put it, sort of an education the same way that some of my cable-having friends were getting from channels like Nick at Night and later TV Land. Fox 5 tra tried to play cool at times, as did PIX. Both had syndicated team soap operas at one point or another. Like I said, Fox 5 was Tribes, but uh, WPIX ran Swan's Crossing with Sarah Michelle Gellar and uh, the Aussie import Paradise Beach. 
But because PIX had such a deep library, it mixed classic with cool, and it felt like a truly independent station with the total package. A lot of that obviously had to do with Fox 5's becoming a full-fledged network affiliate at one point, so PIX did have more time to fill with whatever it could, and this was in the days before judge shows and talk shows basically took over everything. Yeah, back in the 80s and early 90s, they would have run the People's Court and maybe a daytime talk show before that cartoon block, but whereas Channel 9 went full-on talk show by the time I was in high school... Channel 11 was still in afternoon cartoons and sitcoms followed by a primetime movie. Plus, PIX just shone on weekends. It had blocks of original shows, and this is where you saw like music shows like Star Search and Soul Train and Solid Gold. and You saw horror and science fiction like Tales from the Dark Side, Friday the 13th the series, and Star Trek The Next Generation. Now, not of all of these were always top-notch entertainment. Some of them aired on the side of cheese. But they were my first step into that larger world of older entertainment. Which brings me all the way back to my original point about syndicated television. In many ways, I benefited greatly from this childhood deprived of cable. And that's what I'm going to spend my time in this seven-episode miniseries exploring. So, I'm going to take another break, and I'm going to take that first step with my first genre. It's something that WPIX especially excelled at, and that's movies. I'll get to that after these messages. Attention, attention all personnel. New from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, it's MASHCAST! Hosted by MASH megafan Rob Kelly and a rotating cast of VIPs, MASHCAST analyzes, episode by episode, the greatest television series of all time, MASH! Find MASHCAST on fireandwaterpodcast.com Jocularity! Jocularity! The theme song that you just heard was the theme to Siskel and Ebert, The Movies, uh, which was the sequel to another show they did called At The Movies, which is one of two shows they hosted in syndication after leaving their PBS show Sneak Previews. This was a show where Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, who were film critics from the Chicago Tribune and the Chicago Sun-Times, respectively, sat down to talk about that week's new releases and gave each film a rating of thumbs up or thumbs down. This show was so popular that Siskel and Ebert giving a movie two thumbs up or two thumbs way up could be considered a huge plus for that film's release. And if you like flip through movie times in the newspaper, this was also something that happened back in the day, people. Um, you'd see it like on the little advertisements for uh, the movies next to the movie times. Like two thumbs way up would be like in big big letters over the title of the movie because people paid attention to what Siskel and Ebert had to say. Siskel and Ebert were actually really important to me as a kid who loved movies because in addition to talking about movies I was interested in, they would talk about stuff that I was too young for and I would often file that away in my mind for when I was older. Or I'd wind up catching one of their specials, you know, retrospectives or something like that. And I would learn about classic movies or other stuff at the theater and the video store. And since I practically lived at the movie theater and the video store, this was basically my, well, my first film class. Yeah, I'd actually take two film classes in college as electives, but it was Siskel and Ebert who schooled me on some of the basics of the must-see movies, as well as really how to critique a movie. 
I'm going to go on a bit of a soapboxy sort of ramble here and say that this, you know, being able to give a succinct, deft critique of a film is a lost art, or at least it's becoming a lost art. Scour YouTube and you have video after video published by lazy hacks who are so hungry for clickbait that they will present opinions that have so little evidence as proof or completely miss any point or, and this drives me nuts, spending in excess of 10 minutes delivering what is basically a freaking tweet. But they're under the impression that longer and more clips equals better or smarter? And I realize that's rich coming from me, who is a podcaster. But seriously, listen to this clip of Siskel and Ebert discussing Predator. What happened? I saw it. You saw what? I saw it. Arnold Schwarzenegger parachutes into the jungle on a political mission, but finds himself fighting a creature from outer space and Predator, one of the new movies we'll be reviewing this week. I'm Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Gene Sisko of the Chicago Tribune. Predator stars the muscle man with a smirk, Arnold Schwarzenegger, in a story that is part Rambo and part alien. And that's a tired mix for me. I'm personally tired of seeing a commando armed to the teeth battling a slimy, <laughs> extraterrestrial creature with a horrendous overbite. Typical of the all-too-familiar action in the film is when Schwarzenegger is sent to infiltrate an enemy village and rescue some Americans. Pure Rambo. Pure boredom, if you ask me. What the hell is he doing? That's just a Rambo-like setup for the real story, which is Arnold battling a mysterious force that hides among the trees and sees with heat-sensitive eyes and seemingly cannot be destroyed. I know one thing, Major. I drew down a fire straight at it, kept off 200 rounds in the minigun, full pack, nothing. Nothing on this earth could have lived. Not at that range. Hank, you take first watch, then you get some rest. Later, Arnold interrogates a Latin American woman. The dialogue only repeats the same tired theme. Yesterday, what did you see? You're wasting your time. No more games. I don't know what it was. It's... Go on. It changed colors, like the chameleon. It uses the jungle. What's your name? Anna. Anna, this thing is hunting us. All of us. I think you get the feeling you've seen this movie before, except, I must say, when the creature arrives. When the creature arrives, that's a little different in the beginning of the creature. But when you see the creature finally at the end of the picture, then you think you're seeing outtakes from the movie Aliens. As derivative as Predator is, though, it's not all bad, not by long shot. Schwarzenegger can be funny, and the creature, as I said, is a marvelous creation in its invisibility as it moves around and blends with the foliage. But the story is old hat. No, make that recent hat. Rambo mixed with aliens. Let me get this straight. You liked the creature as long as you couldn't see it. It was only when you could see it that you didn't like it. It is full, yes, it is full revelation. And you, I don't want to give away you too much of the movie. You enjoyed the early scenes in The Invisible Man, too. I did enjoy them. This, but yes, my imagination is more interesting than the reality. This you got movie, it. I think, is better than you're giving it credit for. It's a, it is exactly what it is. It is a pure summer <laughs> action picture. Yeah. It is two hours of excitement. They shot it on location in the jungle, which is a very effective... Uh, placed uh, a very effective yeah, a good environment place to, to prefer a jungle movie. No, but I mean they could have shot it on the back lot somewhere. This looks and sounds right. It feels right. There's a lot of energy in it, and that's what it is. Of course, it's a cross between Aliens and Rambo. But so what? Well, the people the, the, who will enjoy this movie can't remember I last summer's movies. They probably can't I, remember last week's movie. Now come on. Forget the people. I don't care about the Obviously, people that are going to enjoy it. People. I don't enjoy it. I don't, I'm tired of this stuff, and that's all that I'm paid here to say. Okay, next movie. Our next movie is named Million Dollar... I shouldn't have been so hard on this, but what I'm trying to say is 
not that they couldn't remember the movies they'd seen last week, but that it's just, oh, it's just a Friday night entertainment. Yeah. It's very, very effective. Your, your standards are level. dropping. Your standards My are dropping. My standards are not dropping. Your standards are dropping. Your next movie is my standards. You think my standards are dropping. Our next movie, I was about to say, is a million-dollar mystery. I mean, you may disagree with what either of them are saying. Or both of them. I mean, you might have a completely different opinion about Predator. But the point is, like I said earlier, this is succinct. It's deft criticism. I really miss that. I really miss that, if I'm being completely honest. Now let's go to the movies. Movies were often the syndicated channel's primetime standards, with some of the channels running them during weekend afternoons as well, when there wasn't much other programming that they had available. These movies ranged from the fairly recent to the classic and were sometimes part of a holiday tradition. For instance, Fox 5 tended to run Miracle on 34th Street, WPIX would run the Laurel Hardy movie March of the Wooden Soldiers every Christmas, while PIX would run John Wayne's The Quiet Man, around St. Patrick's Day. Now, the genres were all over the place. Uh, you get a wide variety of movies. They were, of course, also edited for television. Now, sometimes editing a movie for television wasn't that big of a deal, but other times editing a movie for television resulted in really odd changes made to movies. Uh, you can actually find a number of movie clips on YouTube if you search for edited for television. Uh, very often this meant that a particular violent or gory scene might be cut or trimmed. Uh, nudity obviously would be removed. But if a scene was vital to the film and simply had cursing, then sometimes you'd get some really crazy stuff. I don't believe it! What? You, you burned the fucking money! I had to blow the door, what do you want? It's as good as Mark, you asshole, you stupid, stupid asshole! I don't believe it! You, you burned up money! I had to blow the door, what do you want? It's as good as Mark, you dipstick, you stupid, stupid, stupid! Hey, 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 it's me, I'm a cop! Slow down there! What, are you crazy man? Shut the fuck up and do it! You stole it! What, are you crazy man? Shut your face up and do it! You are gonna be a bad motherfucker. You are gonna be a bad mother crusher. Your ass is mine. Your tail is mine. I fucking love that guy. I really love that guy. I seem to remember the uh, the my friends and I making fun of the edited for television version of The Breakfast Club at one point when we were in in, in junior high school because it was just like really really badly overdubbed anyway odd overdubs weird cuts aside syndication was where i cut my teeth on a number of movie genres and where i'm going to take a moment to talk about the two that are tops in that regard horror movies and teen movies because syndicated movies were mostly good five years removed from their theatrical runs the movies I was often seeing were the type of stuff that teenagers were going to see in theaters or renting on video back when I couldn't wait to be a teenager. I'm not sure everyone was pumped for Friday the 13th Part 8 Jason Takes Manhattan, but if you wanted a low-risk shot at a Jason or Freddy movie, they did make their way to syndication in the 90s. Plus, PIX and WWOR would often run classic monster movies, which is how I first saw King Kong and a number of Godzilla flicks, especially on Godzilla-thon weekends. He's mean, green, and making the New York scene. Godzilla, over 12 hours of the mightiest movies. For two days only. The Godzilla-thon starts Saturday at noon on Channel 11. How could you not want to watch that? But the two horror movies, however, that I remember seeing for the first time on syndicated broadcast and that stayed with me for years afterward are two 70s horror classics. One is The Exorcist and the other is Carrie. 
The Exorcist is a film that I actually did not see in its unedited format until I was in my 20s, and even then it was the extended cut that was part of that 1999-2000 uh, re-release. WPIX used to run the crap out of this movie, and it would make sure that the promos were sufficiently creepy. Max Mancido and Linda Blair, The Exorcist, tomorrow at 8, only on the WB Channel 11. To be honest, I think I might have remembered some of the promos more than the movie because I don't know if I made it all the way through. Not because The Exorcist is particularly scary, or it was scary to me at that time, but because I was probably bored. I might have started flipping channels during a commercial break. I found something else. I decided to play Nintendo. I, I love The Exorcist now, but at 12 or 13, I may have not been ready for it, if that makes any sense to anybody. Carrie, on the other hand holds the distinction of being one of the first, if not the first, horror movie that I ever saw. I was watching television by myself one afternoon when I was probably about 8 or 9 and the movie came on. My dad didn't seem to object to me watching it for whatever reason, and even though I was easily scared by horror stuff on TV, I had no problem making it through. My memories are fuzzy as to my reaction, but it left enough of an impression on me that I would watch it almost every time it was on. And to this day, if I come across Carrie on cable, I will watch it, especially if it's anywhere near the prom scene. I mean, I freaking love that movie. And the book. The book's really good, too. I'll probably make an episode about it at one point, a pop culture affidavit. I mean, I think I owe that to WPIX. I also owe other movies to syndication. I already mentioned the edited version of The Breakfast Club, and that is where I did first see my favorite movie of all time. But also, Better Off Dead, Some Kind of Wonderful, Fast Times with Ridgemont High, Pump Up the Volume, Heathers, and Hard Bodies. Yeah, Hard Bodies. I'm going to start with that last one. I'm, these are the movies I'm going to talk about a little bit. Um, Hard Bodies is an awful movie. Uh, in fact, I think I reviewed it for Bad Movie Night like 10 years ago. But I have to mention it because it's kind of like Porky's. Like, watching it as edited for television is an exercise in complete uselessness. And while I don't remember watching the entire film, I remember that it actually marked kind of a seminal moment for me because I wound up renting it at 15, by the way, which I shouldn't have been able to do at the video store because it was an R-rated movie, but the guy at the video store didn't give a crap. But I rented it, and I rented it because I had been I had come across it on television, and I came across was obviously a cut nude scene, like you know they, they made a weird cut, and there was obviously a girl taking her top off. So I went to the video store and rented a movie because there was boobs in it. Anyway, this is not about like edited for television, hard bodies, and renting things because I wanted to see boobs. It's because it 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 always fascinated me that it was one of those movies whose existence I would have been completely unaware of if not for WPIX. Fast Times at Richmond High, which I covered with Todd Liebenau back, oh God, in like 2015 or so, a long time ago on the main podcast, has the most famous nude scene in 80s cinema, if not all of cinema. And I rented that because I had caught the last half hour of the movie on PIX. I'm sure that I probably watched it because I recognized uh, Jennifer Jason Lee from Backdraft because I'd been watching that movie like over and over at that point. And Judge Reinhold was on Beverly Hills Cop and he was in Vice Versa. And this film, as I said uh, all the way back in the episode, the film's really heavy. Uh, but the moments I really hung on to when I was 15 or so were the silly ones, like that final exam montage at the end. The other movies I mentioned, though, were movies that I not only caught parts of or bits and pieces of, but actually watched in their entirety on television and then sought out at the video store afterward. Way back in like the third or fourth episode of this show, Mike Bailey and I covered Savage Steve Holland, and I mentioned that I caught Better Off Dead on WPIX. Specifically, the first scene I ever caught was the math class scene. But then... I noticed weeks later that PIX was airing it on a Friday night, I, and I went out of my way to be home and watch it. 
With the other movies I mentioned, it was probably a situation where I caught it about 15 minutes in and was so hooked that I made it through the commercials and then all of the rest of the movie, and I really couldn't stop thinking about it afterward. I'm sure that I rented Pump Up the Volume, Heathers, and The Breakfast Club to see them without the overdubbing and to see what they may have cut out. Some Kind of Wonderful, on the other hand, was one I'd seen exclusively on television until finally buying a VHS copy in college. One of the things Amanda said to me on one of our episodes together was that she was surprised when she met me how old the music was that I listened to. This definitely applied to movies as well. I was deep in 80s movie nostalgia before, well, to use a really tired phrase, before it was cool. And that's not because I wanted to be cool, but because I spent so many days and so many nights flipping through channels and looking to find something that spoke to me that I landed on these movies that sometimes grabbed me by the comedy, like Better Off Dead, or that was something to oddly aspire to if that makes any sense not that i thought i could any be be any of the male characters from a john hughes movie but i I do remember feeling like the people in those films were kind of like the cool older kids that you always sort of wished you had shared experiences with getting deeper into high school and into the 90s and seeing shows like my so-called life changed my perspective a little bit but for at least a time Movies and syndication provided a haven, and also an appreciation for the less, quote, great, less pretentious side of popular culture, the stuff that was decidedly uncool or was looked down upon. I mean, I didn't talk about action, but if you wanted to watch a Chuck Norris, a Steven Seagal, a Charles Bronson movie, a Stallone movie, PIX ran them all the time. I think they were like contractually obligated to at least run one Death Wish movie a month. These are not considered Casablanca. You know, I mean, they're... They are what they are. And I think that's what gave me an appreciation for this kind of level of stuff. And that's syndication. Really. I'm sure many people saw watching programs on syndication channels as a time waster. And when they start talking about what's great about television and the classics of television and all these things, a lot of this stuff is not going to be worth considering, at least to them. But I'm among those who has a real appreciation for it. And that's why this miniseries exists. So thank you for taking this brief look at movies with me. Thank you for listening to a little bit of the history of syndication. And I'll be back in a week with my second installment. And that is going to be a look at the genre of sitcoms. So thanks again and take care. concludes our programming for today. We welcome any comments you may have regarding our programming. It Came From Syndication is located at popcultureaffidavit.com with our email at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and Twitter at popaff. Pop Culture Affidavit is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Some of today's programming has been mechanically reproduced. It Came From Syndication wishes you a pleasant good night and good morning. 